Some have said God is like an equilateral triangle, and if you take away one of those angles, you lose everything. Others say it's like three matches put together, and there's one flame but three distinct matches. Others say it's like a, the Trinity is like a rope with three strands, yet one rope. You've heard this one probably. It's like it, the Trinity, He is like the light, heat, and motion. Water, solid, it's ice, liquid, steam. Like, like a butterfly. Think of the Trinity like a butterfly. Egg, larva, and then the butterfly. Think about an apple. You've got the apple fruit, and you've got the core, and you've got the seeds. Or, or maybe, maybe body, soul, and spirit. That would be good. And for all of these, I just say no, 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 and no. Gregory said, a great theologian of 1,700 years ago, I've been unable to discover anything on earth with which to compare the nature of the Godhead. So you have to get the information from God revealed in Scripture to understand Him, not let's look at something on earth and then we can compare an earthly thing and understand God. The Trinity is unique. It's revealed doctrine. But there's another error in many churches. I don't think the error is here, but it's good to talk about today anyway for preventative maintenance. And here's the error. Let's do a word association. You don't have to do it out loud because I'm purposely doing this so that you'll fail. If I said the word gospel, I wonder what you think of right away. Of course, I want you to think the risen Savior conquered death, hell, Satan. Jesus is alive. Up from the grave, He arose. Is that the gospel? Of course. But there's something more to the gospel. I want you to think Trinitarianly about the gospel. If I say the word gospel, I want you to think the Father sends, the Son goes, and the Spirit applies. When you think of the gospel, you should be thinking Trinitarianly. Every time you hear about the good news, you should be thinking to yourself, oh, God is one, three persons. Jerry Bridges, of course, you know him well, and I think his writings well. He would say what? Preach the gospel to yourself every day, and that includes God as triune. Your salvation is triune, your baptism is triune, baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Your praise should be triune. Fred Sanders said, nothing we do as evangelicals makes sense if it is divorced from a strong doctrinal grasp of the coordinated work of Jesus and the Spirit worked out against the horizon of the Father's love. In other words, the gospel is Trinitarian. I also this morning want you to think this way. If I say the Father, I also want you to think Son and Spirit. In other words, if I say one person the Trinity, I want you to think of the other two because we don't believe in three gods, do we? We believe in one God. And so if you think of Father, or I say Father, then you think, oh, Son and Spirit. That's kind of easy to do if you think, okay, resurrection, if I say Jesus was raised from the dead, well, the Father raised the Son, the Son raised Himself. Who else raised the Son? The Holy Spirit. You don't sound too confident. Maybe at the end, right? The crucifixion of Jesus. It says in Romans 8, the Father did not withhold His Son, but gave Him up for us all. And yet in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, the Son loved me and gave Himself for me. So today is super simple. My goal is this. If I say gospel, I want you to think Trinity. And if I say one member of the Trinity, I want you to think of all the members of the Trinity. Sound good? 
All right, that's what I'm after. Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians, excuse me, Romans chapter 1. Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like you to see every Pauline epistle starts off with Trinitarian instructions and introductions. Now, not every member of the Trinity is going to be mentioned every single time, but when you think of the one, you think of the three. And so if God says something about the Father, we're already thinking about, oh, He's sending the Son and the Spirit's going to apply. Uh, Romans chapter 1, before I go read some of that, here's what Gregory of Nazianzus said in 381 A.D. No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I'm carried back to the one. When I think of any one of the three, I think of him as the whole. And my eyes are filled, and the greater part of what I am thinking escapes me. I cannot grasp the greatness of that one so as to attribute a greater greatness to the rest. When I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch and cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. And so Gregory understood. You think of the one, you think of the three, because there's one God subsisting in three persons. So watch Paul as we take a survey of Paul's epistles. Romans 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. That's talking about the Father. We'll see that right now, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. The Father concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the capital S, Spirit of Holiness, Holy Spirit, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul starts right off in Romans, and he starts thinking Trinitarianly. Sometimes he doesn't talk about all three members of the Trinity. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this is kind of like Bible drill. You, you, you get the WD-40 on the spine of your Bible, and off we go. All right, here we go. Fast pace, 1 Corinthians 1-3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what do you mean the Holy Spirit? He's not mentioned. Well, he doesn't need to be mentioned because if I say Father, you think of Son and Spirit. Or if I say Father and Son, you think of Spirit. And so if you say one, you mean them all. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he does the exact same thing. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Paul thinks in a Trinitarian fashion, and from the get-go, front-loaded, his introductions are Trinitarian. Galatians chapter 1. Every single Pauline epistle does the exact same thing. Hebrews is a little different if you want to think it's Pauline or not. It's its, it's, its own thing. It's a sermon. But every other epistle of Paul starts this way. Galatians 1 verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us. Did you know Colossians starts that way? Remember when Pastor John was in Colossians 1 14 years ago? Remember that? 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, they all start this way. But the one that is the most explicit The one that shows the triune God most revealed is the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. Let's turn there, and that's our passage for today, Ephesians chapter 1. 
When you think of the gospel, you should think of the triune God. And when you think of one member of the Trinity, the Son, you should be thinking, well, the Father is sending the Son. You should be thinking that the Spirit applies the work of the Son. When you think of them one, you think of them all. Thinking Trinitarianly, Paul wants us to do that. God, in fact, the triune God, wants us to do that. Many churches say they believe in the gospel, theoretically, statement of faith-wise, but it's not operational in the church, as Graham Goldworthy says. Yeah, it's in our statement of faith, Jesus died and was raised from the dead, but the pastor gets up, the Sunday school teacher gets up, and they talk about everything but Jesus, because it's only theoretical, it's not operational. So too with the Trinity. It's in the statement of faith that you have here at the church that you agreed with before you joined. But is it operational in the church? Do we pray in a Trinitarian fashion? When we think of the one, do we think of the others? And so when you read Ephesians 1 and hear it preached, you'll say, I don't want in my life the gospel of the triune God to just be some kind of theoretical, abstract thing that is practically irrelevant, boring, and too hard to understand. Paul won't let you do that. He's filled with good news. It starts off, verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then with an explosion of praise, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And off he goes. One long sentence, Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14, 202 Greek words. No main verb, no main verb, all redounding to the praise of the triune God. Paul, how many years earlier, got saved? Paul's writing this church and other churches around Ephesus. 25 years earlier, he was on the Damascus Road, on his way to kill Christians, to take children from their Christian parents and jail them and do all kinds of other things. And God interrupted Paul. Remember? It was dramatic. Paul wasn't seeking God and taking a step toward God. No, he's going the other direction. And Paul was rescued, delivered by the Lord Jesus. And Paul was a changed man. And 25 years later, Paul's like, yeah, that's old hat. Praise the Lord from whom all blessings flow. (sighs) You know those new Christians, they're excited about Jesus. But like me, they'll get over it. Paul. I mean, the other day... um, Maybe I shouldn't say this, but maybe there's a statute of limitations. I don't know. I know lawyers. You can't get fireworks in Massachusetts because you can't get anything in Massachusetts. It's the Commonwealth. And so you go to New Hampshire and you can get fireworks. Big ones. And so I say to my wife, I'm going to open up the flue in the living room, light off a couple. And she's like, what are you doing? Submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. <laughs> and I just lit that thing and it's shooting up the food. It's white hot and the kids are going, Dad. I mean, it wasn't one of those big ones, but still. It's good for a sermon illustration at least. And you ever have those kind of, those, those flares, they just shoot up little Roman candle-like things? This is a Roman candle of praise with three specific praises to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. 
If you say the one, you should think of all three. And if you hear gospel, of course, you should think about all three. But here in this one, it makes it very simple because Paul's praise was a Trinitarian praise. Is doctrine relevant? Of course it is. And Paul begins to extol the Father. Blessed be. That's where we get the word eulogy. Eulogy just means good word. To say good words about God, to praise Him for who He is, to speak well of Him. This is important for all of us because 25 years earlier, Paul gets saved and writes this letter to the Ephesians, and he's not over the Lord Jesus and the Father and the Spirit. Fast forward from the church at Ephesus about 30 years, maybe 40, John writes to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, and they had gotten over their first love. They'd left their first love. So this is good ignition for us to try to work through and say, oh, Lord, revive my heart. You don't go to revivals. You say in the scriptures, revive my heart. That's my prayer for you this morning. God, revive my heart through this Trinitarian praise because I never want to get over the Lord Jesus. I deserve hell forever. I've spit in the king's face so many times, and yet he loved me. He sent his son for me at his own cost to live for me, to die for me. Yes, even raise for me. He's praying for me. The Spirit of God is, is indwelling me, and I want to praise God like this. It's just, a, it's just a burst of praise. God the Father's sovereignty, God the Son's sacrifice, and God the Holy Spirit's sealing. This umbrella of Trinitarian praise, Paul had not got over who God was. And Calvin said this is meant to intend, this is intended to rouse the church's hearts to gratitude. Spurgeon said, nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as an investigation of the deity, the most excellent study for expanding the soul is Christ and Him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. So that's what we're going to do today. God, our triune God, is worthy of our praise. Now, what we're going to do as we look through this passage with these three bursts of praise, in theology, this is called the economic trinity. The economic trinity. It's okay if I say words you don't know. I tell our congregation, if I say a word you don't know, I try to explain it and then go home and study it. The economic trinity, generally speaking, talks about what God does, how we see Him work in time. Yesterday, I talked about God before time and that counsel between the Father and the Son and the Spirit before time. Now we're looking at God in time because Jesus was in time, a real incarnation. God saved you in real time. How the three persons in the Godhead relate to each other in the world of creation and here in the world of redemption. The word economic basically means household management. You have different roles in the family. What does the husband do? What does the wife do? What do the children do? What are the roles? And so we see these roles here of the father choosing sovereignly, the son sacrificing himself as a redemption, and then the spirit sealing. And so we call this, and these distinctions of the three persons of the Trinity, the economic Trinity, what God is doing in space and in time. Unlike who God is in eternity passed by nature, our essence, our ontological, here we have these three stanzas of praise. And by the way, each one does end with praise. Do you notice verse 6? To the praise of the glory of His grace. After we get done talking about the Father, that's the doxology from the theology of the triune Godhead, 
person number one. At the end of verse 12, what do you see? To the praise of His glory. You talk about the Son and His redemption. The second person of the Trinity lends itself to praise. And then finally, verse 14, it shouldn't surprise us, to the praise of His glory. I don't know much much about music, but I don't think this is in a minor key. This is praise. Three stanzas of praise to our great triune God. Well, let's go to the first one, God sovereignly choosing. God sovereignly choosing. Do you notice in verse 4? Just as He, we're talking about the Father, chose us in Him, that's the Son, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. We see different roles of the Trinity, and we call the Father, the Father for lots of reasons. He reveals Himself that way, but it's the Father who is sending the Son. He's not sent by the Son. He sends the Son, and He has chosen people. And Paul praises God for that. You know, most people I meet, they'll say the doctrine of predestination and election and choosing, I don't like and I grind my teeth against it, but for the Apostle Paul, what did he do? He praised God for it. He praised God for it. The right response to sovereign election is not angst, is not pridefully saying, how could you do that? I want to be God. I'll tell you what to do. I know you chose Israel, not the other nations. I know you chose certain Levites to be the priest and not other people. I know you chose some apostles and other people, but don't you tell me you choose some and not the other? No, no. We, we, we just look at God and say that He'd choose anybody. The angel sinned. He didn't choose anybody to rescue Paul praises the Father for this. One writer said, sermons on election are so so rare that even a regular churchgoer may never hear one. People seethe over this doctrine. They're mad. Herman Melville wrote Moby Dick as a reaction to this doctrine. At least, though, you could read Daniel Defoe and Robinson Crusoe because he was for this doctrine. Oh, you know what, maybe the Spirit of God put this election stuff in kind of by mistake. You know, we'll talk about election on Wednesday night when there's not a lot of people to offend, but Sunday morning, no, no. Calvin's Scripture is the school of the Holy Spirit in which as nothing is omitted that is both necessary and useful for you to know, we must guard against depriving believers of anything disclosed about predestination in Scripture Oh, I'll be over Scripture, and I won't want to tell you about these truths because it might cause a fuss. Well, it's not meant to cause a fuss, and I'm under Scripture. Here's what it's meant to cause. Light that fire, Roman candle. It says, what do, they, what do fireworks say all the time? Lay on ground, light fuse, run away. <laughs> but, you know, it's fun to hold the Roman candle. Here's the first one of praise, election. When was the last time, dear congregation, you said, God, I praise you for choosing me? Thank you for choosing me. You didn't have to choose me. I didn't deserve to be chosen. I wasn't holy and blameless. You chose me that I would live that way, undo that living that way. But you chose me in eternity past, and I'm to praise you. God chose me. I've told the story about, you know, when I realized my wife loved me, and she wasn't my wife at the time, but she loved me, and she wanted to marry me. 
Out of all the people in the world, she chose me. How much more when it comes to the Father? This is this like nitroglycerin to the soul. Yes, you have to handle it carefully, but you have to handle it. Everybody in this room, if you believe the Bible to be true, believes in election and choosing and predestination because it's right there. Some of you might think it's post-destination where God doesn't choose the destiny of people pre-time, but post-time. He sees things and then chooses. There'll be no praise for that. God, you chose me based on what you know I would do. That's not praiseworthy. Paul is praising God over and over and over. God has the right over everyone. The potter has the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable and another for common use. And since we're all dead in sins and trespasses, Ephesians chapter 2, he's going to have to do the choosing. And Paul is praising. Election should instill praise in you. You say, well, you know what? Predestination is unloving. At the end of verse 4 and 5, in love he what? No, there goes that argument. This praise of the triune God. Say, well, God just picks and chooses arbitrarily. I got to New England and I didn't know how to play hockey, but everybody played hockey, so I played hockey with the guys. And you know how they choose teams? In basketball, you kind of divvy up teams and I choose you and I choose you, shirts and skins and all that. Well, hockey, you put your stick in the middle of the, of the ice pond all stacked up and then somebody just goes randomly and pushes the things to different sides and if your stick is over there, you're on that team. If your stick is on this side, you're on that team. And God just sees all of humanity and just kind of goes, oh, these are saved and these are lost. Is that what God does? No, no. In love, He chose you. God loved me in eternity past. My mom would, uh, I'd say goodbye to her at Christmas time in Omaha and I'd fly back to Los Angeles and I lived there alone at the time, not married. And she would be sad because she'd say to me, Mike, who's picking you up at LAX airport? Town of eight million people. I said, I, I have to take a cab. I don't know one person well enough to get a ride. And she was sad that I didn't have any friends. Maybe I was unfriendly, but she, she was sad anyway. That the God of the universe in eternity past knows me and loves me. Think of Paul. It had to be because Paul was on a mission. He was righteous, yea, self-righteous. And he knew how to attack, and he knew the law. And he knew if you wanted to get to heaven, you better be zealous for the law, blameless. Circumcised on the eighth day, on the eighth day tribe of Benjamin. You have to be interrupted. You have to have somebody who initiates, who starts, not, well, I do my part, God does his part. No, no, God chooses. He's the active one. Spurgeon, what amazes me is not that God did not choose everybody, but rather he chose me. In love, he predestined us. Nothing arbitrary about that. A little contextualization. Anybody farming here? Does anybody farm or have cows or anything like that? Okay, some do. Some are ashamed. Raise your hand. Listen to this guy. My reaction to election must be belief. Although I cannot decipher it, I can accept it. Just as I cannot comprehend how a brown cow eats green grass and yields white milk, which turns into yellow butter. Nevertheless, I enjoy its products. I can't figure that out, and I'm like, well, oh, free will, and my mind is blown. Well, okay, good. This is the revealed doctrine. You must believe this. And it's not to cause you consternation. It's to cause you praise. I'm a child of the king. I'm adopted. What's the passage saying in verse 5? As adoption, as sons. 
not been given the spirit of slavery, but of adoption, crying out, Abba, Father. He, I deserve to be damned, and he, he chose me. Only by his grace, verse 6. Only by the kind intention of his will, verse 5. And so only God gets the praise. I'll steal a line from a theologian I know named Pat Abendroth. When you get to heaven, you won't fist but God and say, we did it. Isn't that from you? High five. Did you steal it from somebody? Okay. There's a hymn that goes, I sought the Lord and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. God, the triune God, and here we see the focus on the Father chooses people. And if you're a Christian, he chose you. We should praise God for that. When I survey the wondrous cross, it drives us to praise. Well, if you think of the Trinity, you should think about the unbegotten Father, the begotten Son who's not made, and that's what we have our focus on now in verses 7 through 12. This is a Trinitarian praise, and we move from the Father's sovereign choosing to the Son's sacrificial redemption. Everything designed to praise, illicit praise, everything designed to humble us. We are prideful people. By the way, and I don't want to be mean, but if you struggle with election, you struggle with pride. You struggle with how depraved you are before God, and He'd have to do all the work. It's okay. It's good to just, when you give up to yourself, then you can give into election. That's what happens. By the way, we lots of times say, God, I praise you for the Son's work. Paul starts with, I praise you, God, for choosing me. Now he says, I praise you for the Son's work. The Father didn't come down to heaven to do His own will. No, the Son came down. The Father didn't perform this redemptive work. The Father's not only begotten. We don't have redemption through the Holy Spirit's blood. Very particular here in the economy of the Trinity. And now we have the Son. It's hard to bleed, by the way, if you don't have human nature and God is a spirit. Let's take a look at it, verse 7. In Him, talking about Christ, we have, present tense, redemption, through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and all insight. He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to the kind intention which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. To the end, that we who are the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. Now we think about the Trinity and we think, in eternity past, the Father and the Son with the Spirit attesting to be a witness the Father says, Son, I want you to go rescue the elect. I want you to live for them, obey the law for them, die for their transgressions. And the Spirit in time will apply that work to people. And I want you to go rescue sinners. And so the Father sends the Son to go rescue sinners. What does the Son do? Well, we're slaves to sin. We're in bondage to sin. So we need to be released. We need to be forgiven. We need to be redeemed. And that's what we have in Him. We have redemption. Our greatest need to have our sins taken care of was met by the greatest Savior, the eternal Son of God who takes on human nature because to be our representative, to obey for us, He has to be human. And to be our substitute, He has to be human. Never giving up any of His deity, 
He, right now, the eternal Son of God, is human and divine, fully, no, truly and verily, perfectly. And now we have in Him, we have redemption. By the way, there's nobody else in whom we have redemption. If you're here today and you're thinking, you know what, I think I can make it out alive and stand before God by being good, by doing religious things, by believing in a different God, it's in Him and Him alone. The Father only sent the Son. By the way, the more you study the Trinity, the more exclusively you'll say in a plurality of God's age, Jesus is the only way because there's only one Son that was sent by the only Father. Here we have redemption. I'll make it really personal. Christian, do you know you don't have to pay for any of your sins? Not one sin you have to pay for. You're redeemed. People think about this. Redeemed how I what? Love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed, redeemed. We can't save ourselves. Somebody has to seek and save the lost. Somebody has to buy us out of the slave pit of sin. Jesus, this God-man, we have in Him redemption. And if you're a Jew, you think about redemption, you think God redeeming Israel out of Egypt, temporally, but now we have it spiritually. Redemption, emancipation of slaves. That's what God would do for us at His own cost. You ought to read a book called Redemption Accomplished and Applied by John Murray. It will help you understand the greatness of your redemption. B.B. Warfield said, there's no one of the titles of Christ which is more precious to Christian hearts than Redeemer. Redeemer is the name specifically of Christ of the cross. Whenever we pronounce it, the cross is placarded before our eyes and our hearts are filled with loving remembrance. Not only that Christ has given us salvation, but that He paid a mighty price for it. Because to redeem someone out of a slave pit, you need to pay And what's that payment called? The ransom. Who's the ransom? Jesus is the ransom Himself. Through His, you see it verse 7, His blood. And when you think of blood, I don't want you to think of white blood cells and and, uh, leukocytes and red blood cells and all this stuff. If I say to you, are you washed in the blood of the Lamb, what would you be thinking? Are you washed in the blood? What do you think? Do you think of red stuff that's sticky? What do you think of? Well, I hope you think this is a term. This is like a theological zip file. Remember old zip files? They condense all this computer information and kind of package it really tightly so that if you needed storage on your computer because you could store 100 megs on your computer max on your IBM 286 SX. See, some of you know what I'm talking about. And then you click on it, and it just, it just opens right up. It's like eating haggis. You cut it, and it just, just comes out. This is a theological term. When I say blood, it's got all kinds of meaning. Blood means death. It means a vicious death, a death, a substitutionary death. Jesus just didn't bleed. He didn't bleed to death. It was a bloody, vicious death, a death on a cross by His blood Because everywhere in the Old Testament, we say, oh, yes, Abraham, Adam, Levitical priest. You go back and you think sacrifice because the wages of sin is death and you've got to have blood for remission. No remission of sin without bloodletting. No, no remission of sin unless it's a bloody, vicious death. 
you could beat Jesus, you could whip Jesus, you can beat his face to a pulp and have some of the blood splatter on you as you punch his face and you're not redeemed. You're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb in terms of his vicarious, vicious death for us. This is theological shorthand for his substitutionary atonement. How are we forgiven? Somebody had to pay for the sins that I committed. Somebody's got to live a perfect life that every creature should live. Jesus did both of those. We say to people, if somebody offended me and sinned against me, I would say what? They ask for my forgiveness, I, for, I forgive you. That's good. It's nice. That's not how God forgives because unlike me, he's thrice holy. There must be blood for forgiveness of sins. When I stand before the throne dressed in beauty, not my own, when I see thee as thou art, loving thee with unsinning heart, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. How much gratitude do we give? How much gratitude do we have when we think about how wonderful the Lord has released us from guilt? Don't you love some of these Old Testament verses to think about sin? I don't know about you, but I have sins in my mental closet that one of the good things maybe about dying several months ago was I wouldn't have to bring these up ever again. Right? You ever get afraid that sometime somebody would put you on a lie detector test and ask you about certain things you've done in your past and now everybody knows about them and they're in the New York Times? Would you like that? I wouldn't. Yet God knows every one of these sins. Sin is son to redeem me anyway. What's the passage say in Micah 7? You will cast their sins into the depths of the sea. Christian, your, your sins in the deepest sea can't recover them. How about he will tread your iniquities underfoot? How about as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed your transgressions from you? I don't know if this is true or not, but I kind of like to do it. It's a good preaching thing to get your attention. If you go north, eventually you'll go south. True. But if you go east, you'll always go east. And so could the Lord be using as far as east from the west? Because they're far. You never get there. If you, O oh Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But there's forgiveness with thee that thou mayst be feared. Cost us nothing, but look at the text, verse 8. He lavished upon us. God was magnanimous with his love because he gave his loved one the son. I don't know about you, but I was okay at some intro math, and I could figure out fractions pretty well. Would you accept a fraction of God's love? You don't get all God's love, but you just get a little bit. Would you take a fraction? I guess we deserve nothing. I'll take a fraction. But he gives more than a fraction. He gives everything. He gives his son. Overflowing abundance of unmerited love. No wonder Charles Wesley said, "'Tis mercy all immense and free, for, oh my God, it what?" found out me. You say, well, it's a forethought of God. Verse 10 doesn't say that at all. All planned by God. This mystery, I loved it when Pat said two days ago, mystery isn't, ooh. Mystery is God knew something, we didn't, and he decided to tell us. He decided to tell us this, and now we know. Making known the mystery of his will. We know things Abraham didn't know. We know things Adam didn't know. We now know he revealed it. We can be certain. We can have assurance. We're Christians. We're forgiven. 
What's that one lady said, that atheist? She said, what I admire about you Christians is that you have somebody to forgive you. If you sin against your spouse and say, will you please forgive me? Are you glad when they say yes? If I do something dumb to Kim, toward Kim, rude, selfish, my, my day's wrecked. I can't work. I got to get home and I want to make up to her. And when she says, honey, I forgive you. Don't you feel good? You actually feel good because you're forgiven. I don't use that many illustrations, I think, in my preaching, but there's a story of a father and a teenage son in Spain. They didn't get along. Relationship strained. Son runs away. The account reads this. Finally in Madrid, in a last desperate effort to find him, the father put a newspaper ad in and an ad read, Dear Paco, meet me in front of the newspaper office at noon. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. The next day, the account says, in front of the newspaper office, 800 Pacos showed up. They were all seeking forgiveness and love from their father. See how I can turn your emotions? <laughs> I'm forgiven, though. You think, oh, I'm forgiven. The Heavenly Father, I'm forgiven because of the Lord Jesus. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. The Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, is there more? Yes, let's go to this third burst of praise, the last Roman candle flare that we have, and now we have the Holy Spirit. He's not the sender. He's not the one that went. He didn't take on human nature. He is fully God. No, I like to say truly God. He is perfectly God. And He, since He's one member, one person, one subsistence of the triune God, is as much as involved in our salvation as the Father and the Son is. Maybe not as much as written about Him, but He's just as much involved because there's one God. Because if you think of the one, you have to think of the three. And when you think of the three, and you have to think of the one. And then after you think of the one, then you have to think of the three. Verse 13 and 14, the Holy Spirit we move to the third member of the Trinity in what we call the economic redemption of our salvation. In Him, talking about Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, how do people get saved? They hear the truth, the good news or gospel of your salvation. Having also believed, you hear it, you listen, it's about Jesus, salvation from sin. Having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who's given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Jesus said in John 14, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things. Next chapter, John 15, Jesus said, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. And so in Trinitarian language, we talk about the unbegotten Father, the begotten Son not made, and the Spirit who comes from or proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's just language you'll hear, and we see it economically in verses 13 and 14. 
two key words I want to bring to your attention. First word is found in verse 13, sealed. Sphagizo. That's a Greek word. I don't say many Greek words, but I want to say one today. Sphagizo. Kind of fun to say, isn't it? Kind of like, you know, am I speaking in tongues or something? Sealed. Let me ask it this way. If you could lose your salvation, would you? If you could lose your salvation, when did you would be a better question. Don't we need help? Don't we need something that will protect us? Don't we need someone to make sure that we're inaccessible from Satan and his hordes and his demons? doesn't take you long to just research sealing and you think about wax and a letter and a little imprint. Some people even do that today, people that have fancy, fancy stationery. That's the language here, sealing, and sealing prevents access. You take a tomb and you don't want to have Jesus' disciples take that dead body of Jesus out, so you seal the tomb, no access, no intruders. Seals also mean ownership. If I send you a letter with that seal, with that wax and my personal initials, M-A, that means something. That means it's a mark of ownership. If I take a brand and I put it on the side of a cow or some cattle, I'm saying I own that. That's like a seal. But most importantly with the word seal, it means protection. There were certain people in the book of Ezekiel, they had marks on their forehead, and if they had marks on their forehead, they wouldn't be destroyed. Okay, Mike, what's the point? Here's the point. The triune God loves within the Trinity. Father loves the Son. Son loves the Spirit. Spirit loves the Father. And there, I could put it just crassly, there's so much love in the Trinity, there's an overflow, and we get to see and be a part of the love that the Father has for the Son because we're in the Son. The Father loves us like He loves the Son. We get to experience some of that love. And to make sure we experience that love, Father says, I'm going to choose you. The Son says, I'll die for those same people. And now the Spirit says, I'm going to seal you to make sure you make it to the end. How are we going to make it to the end? Are we going to make it to the end? Do you have enough food in your closet, in your pantry, to live another 30 years if there's a nuclear bomb? What are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about that? What about Republicans, Democrats, this, that? What about Satan? What about myself? What about my own pride? What if Pastor John goes off the deep end? You better not. There's, there's a thousand what ifs. You are sealed to the day of redemption. He owns you. And if he loses you, it talks more about what he is not doing than what you've done. This is protection. And what if I go off and weird believe some false teachers? You're sealed. Promise. And to put the cream on the top, some clotted cream on the top, or for some of us Midwesterners, to put a little gravy on the top. I moved to California from Omaha, and we had Thanksgiving one year. They didn't have any gravy. Who are you people? I have no gravy? I mean, my dad's staple, he comes home from Korea, it's what for dinner? Gravy bread. That's what we have every night, gravy bread. Remember gravy bread? Don't touch dad's gravy bread. Wonder bread with gravy on it. Is that gluten-free? Here's the gravy. Here's the extra security. If a seal wasn't enough, there's another word. Verse 13 promise sealed in him with the holy spirit of promise verse 14 who was given as a pledge in our inheritance so many words let's dig down let me just pick this word and said pledge 
One day I said to my wife in 1989, she was my, my girlfriend at the time, and I said, Kimberly Duncan, would you marry me? And she said right away, yes. I said, I want to make sure I hear this rightly. I'm going to say it again. Seriously, that's exactly what I did. Will you please marry me? And she said, yes. And then I reached my pocket and I brought out what? This dumb silicone red band. <laughs> I brought her an engagement ring. This is a down payment. The best is yet to come. I promise I'll be there on that wedding day. That's that word right here, pledge. Who's the pledge? What could God give us to make sure we have a guaranteed salvation to the very, very end so it would be to the praise of His glory? Not a thing, not a ring, but the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of promise. He's the pledge. Do you know, Christian, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. You know that because when things are the worst they ever are, you don't know how to pray, you don't know what to do, but inside you say, Father, help me. Do you not? That's the sign of the Holy Spirit in you. When you're in a pickle, you can't get out, nobody can help you, nothing can work, and you say, God, help, Dad, Father. Just like my kids would run to me and say, Daddy, I need help. You have the Spirit of God in you, dwelling in you, helping you say no to sin, yes to righteousness. The earnest deposit guaranteeing a future inheritance. Can a Christian lose their salvation is a bad question to ask. Can God lose a Christian is the right question. So today, what do we see? Here's what we see. The gospel's Trinitarian. When you preach the gospel to yourself every day, you think it's a Trinitarian gospel. And what else do we see? We see that when you mention one member, the son, oh, oh, who sent the son? Uh, who applies the son's work? You say one, you think of the other two. I think of son, oh, the father sending. And by the way, in this Trinitarian love, let me just end with this. Since the father, the son, and the spirit they're all co-equal. They're all one essence in nature. Please, Christian, never think this. The only reason the Holy Father loves me is because the Son assuaged His wrath. Because He was mad at me and angry with me. And His disposition toward me was that. And then later after the, after the crucifixion, now God can like me. That is awful Trinitarianism. It's not modalism, Patrick, it's worse. For God so loved the world. That's talking about the Father. Do you know if the Father loves sinners? Would it surprise you that the Son loves sinners? Would it surprise you that the Holy Spirit loves sinners? Would it surprise you that since He loves you and has paid for you and sealed you and chosen you, that if you obey and go to a conference, if you obey and read your Bible, and if you disobey and do something else, God doesn't love you less and God doesn't love you more. I didn't have my quiet time today. You know, don't feel the blessings of God. Well, A, stop looking at feelings, but B, God loves you with an everlasting love, and it's not dependent on what you do. It's dependent on the Father sending, the Son going, and the Spirit applying. Does that make sense? Of course we should read our Bibles, but when we don't, guess what? You trust in the Savior who read His Bible as often as He should have. Oh, I don't pray enough. You trust a Savior who's making intercession for you right now and on earth perfectly prayed. I don't evangelize enough. You trust a Savior that was sent by the Father with the Spirit of God there helping Him to do all the evangelism that was ever necessary for you to do, and you get credit for that. God sees you as the perfect prayer, the perfect evangelist, the perfect Christian, the perfect minister. How can that be?
The answer is found in the Trinity. Aren't you glad? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your son. And thank you for the Holy Spirit. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Well, thank you for that, Mike. That's a great encouragement and a fitting way to end our conference on our triune God. Uh, Just been so blessed by this, and I hope that uh, your minds have been expanded and your souls enriched as we've been encouraged from God's word and exhorted in this uh, important doctrine that we need to understand. And you can see how understanding it kind of expands our appreciation for some of these key doctrines and and makes us appreciate our salvation even more. Uh, So thank you so much for that. So we'll have our time of fellowship now. I'm going to go ahead and pray for the meal now, and you can be dismissed. Uh, Just uh, go back out and funnel your way back into the uh, fellowship hall, and you'll you'll be served accordingly. So let's pray. Lord, thank you again for this glorious time to be together. Thank you for uh, Pat and Mike and their their sincere effort to bring to us this glorious truth of the Trinity and to help us to understand it and appreciate in a deeper way our salvation and the the love that has been extended to us. We pray that you would bless our time of fellowship, uh, bless the food, and thank you for those who've helped to prepare it and and to provide it to us. Uh, Thank you for this church and all that you're doing in it. We praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.